I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. This is the King and Culture Podcast, where our goal is to critique the hell out of culture. Welcome. Uh, we're really glad that you're here with us today. Uh, Seth and I are pastors at Redemption Church Gateway in uh, Mesa, Arizona. Our assumption is actually that you probably already knew that, or else I'm not sure why you'd be listening to this. But this is a yeah, new podcast that we're starting, Seth. How do you feel about this? I feel pretty excited. I'm, you know, I, I'm a preacher, so... You, you sound excited. Yeah. <laughs> this is as exciting as I get from time to time. No, I, I like talking about God and what it means to know Him, and I like doing it with you, so... Yeah. So the podcast is called King and Culture. So yeah. the king is Jesus. Absolutely. And we're talking... You said something kind of interesting there at the beginning, that we're going to critique the hell out of culture. That, yes. that got some folks' attention. So tell us what that means. Well, the big idea is that our culture is mixed, that there's good stuff in it, there's bad stuff in it. And the bad stuff is not neutrally bad, but it's actually ways in which human society has rebelled against God's design in Eden. And so just like when you're going to eat a real nice bacon cheeseburger, you could describe it as heavenly. Mm. There's also awful things on earth you could describe as hellish. And I think that those hellish things are stuff worth critiquing. And so we're going to critique the hell out of our culture and especially try to expose ways that our assumptions and our thoughts, beliefs, affections, and values are out of line with God's design. So when I hear critique the hell out of culture, part of me really likes that because uh, I think there's a lot worth critiquing. And uh, I think we're all kind of a little bit drawn to things that are just kind of negative and edgy. But I also know that that's not kind of totally our culture. Um, you know, we tend to have a much more trying to present a positive vision of what God wants for the world. So um, so this is kind of a, I don't know, we'll see where this goes, I guess. Yeah, we'll see if it lasts. But I, I think that even our culture it also includes culture within the church. I don't think mm. that sin's just outside the church, it's also inside the church. And so it may even be a thing, a case where I feel more critical of my own tribe than about other tribes because I feel like I know my own tribe better and it's easier to critique me yeah. than it is to critique others. I mean, it's easier to critique others, but it's not usually done in love or it's not usually done with actual knowledge. It's just kind of heaving grenades from a while's away. Uh, whereas I do feel like I can critique kind of this broadly reformed conservative evangelical culture pretty well because it's me because it's you yeah and, yeah and so it feels kind of close to home well let me share a little bit about kind of the heart behind this is um you know we've started a number of podcasts that are going we've got a weekly one now called for jesus where we're kind of looking at how uh what it looks like to live life all for jesus um and then we've got another one going called talking to humans that vicky uh Diemert and mark andrus are doing they're kind of dealing with counseling issues this is one that we're going to do a couple times a month. So we'll release a few of these every month. And the idea really is we kind of wanted to create a space to kind of dig into the deep end of the pool a little bit theologically. Uh, we're making this obviously for people that are part of our church, right? This is not some esoteric thing. This is not we're trying to impress some other pastors or professors somewhere. We're trying to serve our church. But we also kind of go, you know what? We don't always have venues and environments to talk about stuff that's a little more complex and a little more nuanced and a little more thoughtful um, and honestly, a little more academic. And so th this is going to be kind of where we do that. I just, just knowing you and uh, kind of knowing where I like to drive things, I know that it'll end up being practical and helpful, but, um, we just kind of want to let you guys listening know that, Hey, we kind of know this is uh, a little bit different than maybe some of the other content we create. So Seth, give us a, a taste of 
kind of where you want to start and why you want to start there. Yeah, so today we're talking about the knowledge of God. What is knowledge and how do we know God and how does that matter? And what are some of the false ways we buy into that in particular in our Western post-enlightenment context? Yeah. Uh, we, we buy into all types of false bad views of knowledge that are non-biblical. And so I want to talk about that partially because I think that uh, that's where all the best theological discussions begin is what does it mean to know God? And to what detail do you have to know him for it to be a real relationship? To what degree um, is it propositional versus relational? And I think that starting there would be rightly orienting, even the purpose of this podcast, that if we want to talk about king and culture, we kind of got to first start with knowing the king Mm. um, before we start critiquing the culture. Yeah, great. Well, before we get into that topic on knowledge, I think it'd be maybe helpful for people to just get to know you a little bit more, right? A lot of people listening to this will experience your ministry on Sunday or uh, interact with you in different environments, but maybe don't know some of your history and especially some of your history, maybe around some of these issues that we're going to talk about. So uh, give us kind of a snapshot of you and uh, maybe kind of your theological development and philosophical development and kind of where you, where are you coming from on this? Yeah, well, I started deep diving into theology in particular uh, the summer after my high school experience, so right before I started freshman year of college, and it was actually when my buddy Ethan got diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting around a bunch of 18-year-olds and people really looking for answers and basically being met by platitudes from their church. And what I felt like, obviously I'm 18, so I don't have a, I don't have a lot of wisdom now. I didn't have even less then. But a bunch of pastors just dropping the ball on giving real answers of substance to why and how and what God was doing in the midst of this. And so I just felt really frustrated with what I felt like was a silent or cliche-driven church. And so I started reading a ton. I literally hadn't read a book besides Harry Potter cover to cover before that. I got by on spark notes in high school. So it's not like I grew up in a highly literary environment. Mm. So, so even the beginning of your desire for more robust theology was not trying to be impressive or trying to, you know, win some Bible quiz. It was trying to really get grounded in some real answers for pain and suffering and loss. Yeah, Yeah, I had a couple good Bible teachers um, when I was in high school at at Grace, so I had pretty good theological instincts, I felt like, but I couldn't articulate them or talk talk about them or even less pass them on. And so when my buddy Ethan is diagnosed with cancer and they're trying all these treatments, it's not going well— and they're kind of, they ended up flying him to the Vatican to try and get blessed by holy water to, and I just remember feeling like that's not right and not being able to explain it and not wanting to be hurtful, but at the same time trying to point people to the scriptures and to what extent has God promised healing, to what extent has he not promised healing, so when, on what timeline has he promised healing, what, on, on what timeline has he not promised healing. Yeah. So you start reading and you kind of go zero to 60 pretty fast? Yeah, I went zero to 60 on reading and then... I started college at next semester and I was a philosophy major and I remember signing up for philosophy 401 as a freshman, uh, <laughs> which I don't know how my advisor let that happen, but I skipped 101 and all the 100s, 200s, 300s. And all of a sudden I was in rationalism 401 and I was reading, um, especially guys like Descartes and other people who basically make no sense. It's just in wrestling with that. And so it kind of, I went zero to 60 on reading mm-hmm. and, trying to read deeply and slowly and meaningfully and understanding uh, people are trying to make sense of God in the world and what it means to know the world and what it means to know God. And it was at that time I started serving as a worship leader in my church. I came on to staff 
and I was the high school and middle school and college music leader. So Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I led music. And then a number of times the pastors were over me had to tell me, Hey, you're a music, you're leading music. You're not preaching many sermons between songs. <laughs> and so they kind of have had That's to That's a common worship leader thing there. Oh, totally is a common worship leader. And I, I, with I used to have a buddy in college. He, he was loved ska music. And, uh, you know, you, it was like, do you want to listen to ska or ska? You know, that was kind yeah. of his thing. And, and we, he, he was not a Christian and uh, would listen to all these ska bands, but he, there were a couple of Christian ska bands that he really liked and just cause he liked the music and, um, but we'd go to their concerts and they would always do the little mini sermons, you know, real big fish wasn't doing that, but super Downs was, and you know, he would yell, shut up and play. Yeah. <laughs> I think of that sometimes. I'm sure I, the high school I pastors of, over me thought about that multiple times yeah. when part of it is I've constantly felt like I had to re-preach their sermons cause I had to give some substance to what was going on. So that's, as an arrogant young man with a lot to say. So I was actually going to ask you about that because even if this kind of journey into deeper thought started from a good place, I've heard enough stories yeah. of uh, cage stage Seth where all you, you know, everyone should have just caged him up, yeah. you know, where there was, you know, you kind of moved into some arrogant know-it-allism yep. and uh, maybe you want to talk about kind of how you got there and how you're trying to get out of it. Well, eventually I, I got to the point where I felt like I knew more than everybody around me. And that started giving me influence, and I started standing in judgment over people who I either viewed as lazy or incompetent or both, and that's just not fruitful. And so, you know, Ecclesiastes talks about you know how much knowledge puffs the heart, and that totally happened. I think I began from a good place and then went in a bad place, which is kind of the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 story. You start mm. off good, and then sin gets in there and messes it up. And it wasn't until my first year of seminary at Phoenix Seminary, there's a professor named Fred Shea pulled me aside after one of the classes and said, Seth, some people have a lot to say and some people just say a lot. And you're the latter. Ooh. And then he just walked away. It was just a... Ouch. And then the next week after class, uh, he came up to me and said, Seth, people with a lot to say have done the work. You haven't done the work yet. And so just a couple mm. grown-ups who had actually done real theological work because I was the youngest person in seminary by multiple years. And there's actually grown-ups in the class who were impressed with me, who cut me off at the knees. And I think that was good yeah. for me. And then a so, lot. So, so you did undergrad in philosophy at ASU. Yeah, philosophy and psychology. I added psychology later because okay. I, uh, I just wanted to Did be. Did you want to be a barista? I wanted, I wanted to have, you, I wanted to have two useless degrees, <laughs> not just one. You know, double your money. Uh, no, I added psychology because... I, you know, wanted to manipulate people or something. So, <laughs> so. Oh, yikes. Okay. Um, so you did that, and then you went straight into seminary? Went straight to seminary at Phoenix. Got a master's in divinity. Yeah. And then um, while you were working in church, right? So so your education and your ministry were kind of happening together, which I think is actually a, a real gift because it, it helps keep you out of so many just, pie, you know, head in the sky kind of places because you actually have to minister to real people and you have to translate this classic works yeah. to real people and so the translation between the scholars and the people is actually i think a big work of the pastor and so if the pastor's not being understood that's not because the people in the people are dumb it's because the pastor's failing to translate yeah. the scholastic jargon to ordinary humans and so i think the work of translation is something that takes a long time that contextualization 
and it takes a lot of listening to people and it takes a lot of listening to scholars. And I think if you only listen to scholars, you can't translate to the people because you have to listen to the people and then translate to scholars. Yeah. So, um, and then you took a few years off of Phoenix Seminary. I remember actually being with you when you got word that you had uh, officially, you were going to graduate from uh, Phoenix did, Seminary. Yeah. Took a couple of years and now you're doing a doctoral program. Why don't mm-hmm. you talk about that? Yeah. So the doctoral program at Covenant Seminary is there, the way it works is there's the core course work, which is you have to take these six courses and you basically get assigned a reading list. It's usually 12 to 20 books. You read them, you summarize them, you write on them, you critique them or whatever. And then you attend class for a week in St. Louis. So I'm going to Covenant Theological Seminary, which is in St. Louis. It's the denominational seminary of the Presbyterian Church in America. It's a pretty academically robust situation. Presbyterians tend to just be a little more booksy. So I'm the only Baptist I know there. So it's (laughs) kind of fun to be a little bit of a fish out of water. But it's pretty academically rigorous compared to even um, Phoenix Seminary or compared to ASU. And so then you attend class for a week, you sit lectures Monday through Friday, and then you write a long paper. That's, I don't don't know how long. And you're now in the dissertation Yeah, and so I've I've wrapped that part up back in January, wrote my last paper, and now I started my dissertation. And actually just last week I submitted my dissertation proposal, Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty excited about that. That's kind of like you've got to build the, it's like laying the foundation. Yeah. It's the most important slash easiest to mess up slash most expensive to fix. Well, at some point in a future episode, we'll tease this. Uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about your dissertation and what you're learning there and how that's going. Um, for me, just to give a little bit of background as well, I have a bachelor's from uh, University of Illinois where I studied speech communication. The Illini. The Illini. I majored mostly in doubles to left center. Doubles was to what left I was center. going for. Are they and, playing baseball this year? Uh, it's too soon to say. They you know, canceled in the spring after maybe a dozen games. And uh, the Big Ten's not playing football, they say, but who knows. So I feel bad for those guys. It's pretty rough. But went there, and then um, just a couple years ago, finished my master's from the Missional Training Center, which is actually a program that uh, Redemption and some other local churches helped start in partnership with Covenant Seminary. So uh, I kind of took a longer (laughs) journey toward a master's degree, um, had a bunch of starts and stops. And um, I guess the way I would feel about it is I can swim in the theological pool and I feel like I can swim in decently deep. I don't have working knowledge of the original languages. I'm kind of more dependent on uh, software tools and stuff like that. Whereas I know you've studied Hebrew and Greek more explicitly. Um, I think the difference, I mean, there's differences between you and I, one of them is like, you really like to read big, dense, uh, difficult books for fun. And I can read them, and I can make sense of them, but I don't necessarily love it. <laughs> so um, I'm really looking forward to this podcast just in the sense of, I think, um, maybe playing some of that translating role, as well as just some of the things I feel like I'll learn through it. So, Brad, Yeah. All right, so let's dive in then to this topic of, of knowledge and knowledge of God. So if we're going to worship the king, if we're going to be able to evaluate and critique culture, we got to know some stuff. So, yeah. So the big question is, what does it mean to know anything? How do you know? Yeah. Is the sun going to rise tomorrow? There's a big fancy word for this that every time I hear it, I have to go, oh, wait, what, which one is that? What does that one mean again? Yeah. So the word is epistemology, which just means doctrine or study of knowledge. Epistemosology, understanding. It's a study of knowledge. How you know something. Yeah. yeah. So my 
capstone philosophy class at Arizona State was called epistemology. It's kind of like the, the centerpiece of all philosophy. And my favorite theologian, John Frame, begins his systematic theology books with epistemology, knowledge of God. Because if we're going to try and learn about God, God first know what it means to know him. Yeah, it's interesting even just to start there because I think a lot of times, um, you know, I think epistemology is a little bit like the operating system yeah. of our minds that is kind of just running and it, and we're not sure totally why it's running or how it got programmed that way. And um, so a lot of times we just make assertions or claims or arguments kind of based off of a certain view of how you know things. And uh, yeah, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's false? How do you know what you believe? How do you know you don't believe? Yeah. How do you make those decisions, those choices? And it's, it can be pretty frustrating if you get down to it, especially think about pretty much the first classic philosopher, Socrates, there's people before him, but he was like the famous one and his whole deal is he'd walk around just being a huge pain in the butt to people, (laughs) you know? So, so Luke, you're wearing a blue shirt. How do you know it's blue? Define blue. Oh, well. Yeah, that would be annoying. (laughs) Yeah. Define blue. Uh, See, you don't know you're wearing a blue shirt. You just believe you're wearing blue. You don't. And so it was basically walking around, asking people to offer definitions and asking them, how do you know that? How do you know the sunrise tomorrow? Well, because it's risen every time. Okay, well, my great-grandma got up every morning, and then one time she didn't. So how do you know the sun's not going to do that? And it's like, go away, Socrates. How to lose friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they killed Socrates, and some people think that was a good idea because he just was rude and obnoxious. Yeah. And that's the reputation that philosophy majors have and philosophers in general have, is they're just walking around and be like, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? And so that's epistemology. How do you know stuff? How do you know that my fist is going to hit you in the face? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to talk about knowledge in a general sense and then also kind of critique that with some of the biblical view of knowledge and what it means to know things. And so the old philosophers talked about how knowledge was a justified true belief. So you know something if you have a belief that is true that you're justified in having. And so it's like the three conditions view of knowledge. And so until you meet all three conditions, you don't really know something. Justified true yeah, JTB is like the, the old school, old philosopher way of talking about knowledge. So, for example, if some astrologist who is looking at the stars looks up at the night sky and says, based on what Pluto, Pluto is doing, I have certain knowledge that Donald Trump's going to win the election in 2020. And they're convinced in their mind, and they have a belief, and here comes November, Donald Trump wins. It was a true belief but we would say that's not knowledge because that's not a justifiable mm. belief mm. because it's based on false premises. And so he might think he has knowledge, but we would say your justification of that belief wasn't good, so it's not good knowledge. And so this idea of justified true belief is rationalism. It's the whole idea of justification, how do you justify your true beliefs. Really with the justification, I think in that framework would have to be just kind of reason. Yeah, reason, rationalism, premises. And the big idea was there's this philosopher guy named Gettier or Gettier. I don't know. if. How do so you let me just pause really fast. Am I, spo- am I supposed to like JTB or are you just giving us a history of this so far? I'm giving you a history of that. Okay. And so you're I not th- telling me yet whether that's I a think good that thing or not. I think rationally justifying true beliefs is part of the way we know things. Okay. 
but I think I interrupted. So you're just telling no, that's the great story. But if I said like, does a baby have to have justified true belief to drink milk? No. Does, uh, you know, a dog have to have justified true belief to be nice to its owner? No. So there's a level at which knowledge is instinct that I think flies in the face of this rationalism that if you have to justify everything, you end up doing nothing because you just end up descending into a, a nothing of circularity. And that's what I would say. So rationality is good. Rationalism is bad. This justified true belief thing. And so philosophers in the 1960s in particular started critiquing this rationalism um, and started developing what was called post-rationalism or post-modernism. And the big part of rationalism was this idea that we can be objective non-involved observers. So another way to talk about this is positivism, is that I can dis set aside all my biases and I can do the scientific method on something objectively and I can produce this objective form of knowledge. And so I do think that biblically we would say that objective knowledge exists uh, or objective truth exists, but necessarily we are subjects engaging objects using some standard. And so the fact that God designed us as subjects means that there's always a subjective element to knowing, even though there's objective reality. And so this objective-only rationalistic view is actually part of, in the late 1800s, of what led to what we call the modernist controversy. You had a whole bunch of theological liberals trying to do the scientific method on the Bible, and they ended up saying, well, we, don't, we can't have justified true beliefs about miracles in the Bible, we can't have justified true beliefs about the virgin birth because you really can't have justified true beliefs about anything that happened in the past. You can only have justified true beliefs about... Um, so if you're trying to do history, you can't go and verify the justification. You can't talk, okay, did the Civil Rights Act of 1964 get passed? It's like, well, how verifiable is that claim? You end up having to... It's verifiable, but not scientifically. It's not scientifically verifiable. And yeah, so history and science are just kind of a different way of, you can't prove scientifically that George Washington was the first president. You have to prove it historically. Yeah. So science as worldview, scientism. So I think science is good and I think scientific method is good, but when you try to get the scientific method outside of its lane and now the scientific method is approaching the Bible, now you're going this in a bad direction. And so modernism, which was this, attack on the miraculous parts of the scriptures was a huge problem. You had major seminaries in the United States denying the virgin birth, denying the miracles, doing so in the name of rationality, doing so in the name of justified true belief, doing so in the name of progress, doing so. And so modernism is actually a, a non-biblical way of knowing things. Hmm. And one of the things that I'm grieved about is in our current cultural moment, there's a whole bunch of Christians super nervous about postmodernism. And they're appropriately, yeah, appro yeah, super nervous about postmodernism we'll because postmodernism denies objective reality. Postmodernism um, is all subjectivist view of knowing things, and it's all about the response of the person and the feelings and the experience, and it denies facts, objective reality. But the problem is that people are concerned about postmodernism. And they're not concerned about modernism. Like modernism was a huge problem for a hundred years. And now postmodern is a, a problem. But so basically what happens is... When there's kind of a merging, I think, probably for a lot of Christians between reason, like reason as like the way you figure everything out. Because there is a kind of logic to God. 
I mean, God has created a reasonable world and it's ordered and it makes yeah. sense. But um, I think we can kind of slip into that reason as king approach that, um, yeah. Yeah, the reason that reason works is because God designs an ordered universe with laws, and that God does not lie, that there's rationality within him, that one plus one always equals two. Um, and so the rationality is present by God's design, but it has a lane, mm. and it shouldn't get out of that lane. And it's, it's kind of like the tyranny of rationality is rationalism, in which now all things are being judged through the lens of rationality. You were starting to say sometimes Christians are just not critical enough of modernism. Yeah, I would say that Christians who, uh, so in the modernist controversy of the 1800s, you have modernism, the worldview, the rationalist school of thought, start tearing apart the scriptures. You have Harvard and Princeton, which once were evangelical seminaries, go way left. And then you have the development of Westminster Seminary, which was like a seminary split. And you have a guy named Gretchen Mason, J. Gretchen Mason, who started that off, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, which is his view of liberalism is modernism. Um, so he was he's critiquing liberal Christianity, which for him in the late 1800s was resurrection denying, virgin birth denying, conversion requirement denying so-called Christians who just reduced Jesus to a good moral teacher. So that was liberalism to him in the early 1900s. So in that in that history then, the the theological liberals were also the modernists. Yeah, they're the modernists. But then what ended up happening is conservative theologians wanted to be taken seriously by the culture, and so they started using modern theological methods and trusting in them. They started saying things like, if we use the right method, then we will get the right answer, and we can be objective participants or objective observers in the scriptures. And so what ends up happening is you have these critical, exegetical, biblical reading methods being taught, and they start talking about theology as science, theology as a method. And it's really what ends up happening is you embrace the method of the liberal modernists while holding on to the conservative evangelical confessions. And so a whole um, systematic theologies written in the early 1900s were written by a bunch of people who believed in the virgin birth but were still embracing unbiblical epistemologies by because they were going along with the rationalistic understanding of what it means to read and interpret and know. Yeah, I remember um, early in my faith kind of being taught to read the Bible, and um, one of the things I, I think I was explicitly taught this, but um, maybe it, I, it just kind of was just part of the air I breathed there, was the idea that you wouldn't, you didn't really even need to be a Christian to understand the Bible as long as you applied the right reading methods. Yeah. Right? And as long, uh, you know, you kind of read it the right way and you could get the right answer. Um, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think yeah. you need the spirit of God. You need God to reveal himself. You should be able to understand a literary argument if you're a good reader. Yeah. Um, but you're not going to ever be able to truly understand it without the spirit. Yeah. It's, it ends up happening is so you they kind of were trying to have the best of both worlds they're saying yes we believe the virgin birth but also we're holding on to this unbiblical epistemology this idea of rationalist and neutral objective observer who's disconnected from the text doing scientific method on the bible and so you see this all the time that we are and i just want us to be aware of that that modernism 
actually teaches a false epistemology, just like postmodernism teaches a false epistemology, which was nowadays what's more common uh, is everyone sits in a circle, opens the Bible, and says, what do you feel this means? Mm. Which is a postmodern yeah. epistemology, that my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, and they're all equally compatible in the world. Yeah. What would have been, um, so we had kind of Socrates annoying everybody with, uh, how do you know? How do you, how do you really know? Are you sure you know? Um, you had that. Then you kind of really fast forward quite a bit to the JTB. I mean, the justifiable. True belief. True belief. Justifiable true belief, which sounds very kind of um, enlightenment. Yeah. Enlightenment, renaissance kind of time. And then modern and then postmodern. Um, any other kind of... Uh, I don't know, stops on that journey of epistemology. Yeah, this is part of the, so now we're getting, we're really getting deep into the weeds on the nerd stuff on here, but the whole idea that Plato and Socrates also taught justified true belief, and what ends up happening is you come back to that with Descartes in the Enlightenment, but for a good chunk of time, the church was running the world, which uh, historians call the Dark Ages, (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. Yeah, the church was running the world. Everyone was stupid and didn't have any. Be- everyone didn't have knowledge. Everyone was an idiot. Everyone just went along with the Apostles' Creed, and and so. And then you had the Enlightenment. Yeah, and then there's Enlightenment out of darkness, right. light, and now that we're escaping the. Yeah, I, it's funny. I I have those conversations with my kids. They're at a you know classical school, and um, we just talk about how hey, have you ever noticed how these periods of time are just categorized? <laughs> Um, right, the idea that history is just totally neutral is obviously silly. Yeah, the way we categorize stuff. And so the Christians come along, and the Christians are mostly Jewish, who end up recognizing the Messiah has come. And so they take a Jewish epistemology, which we'll get to eventually, I think. Oh, we will? Okay, good. Woo. <laughs> we could have started there because that was the first epistemology. You know. Yeah, e- but we're, we're starting with maybe the... Our, we're critiquing the hell out of culture first. There you go. So, <laughs> there we go. And then we'll get to the heaven and culture and... And so, the, so what ends up happening is the the church is recognizing a, what I would consider a more biblical epistemology. I don't think the church is ever perfect, but I think it's a more biblical epistemology. Then the Enlightenment happens, and then postmodernism grabs a whole bunch of the church, and the method that's employed is scientific, objective, detached, justified true belief. And then postmodernism happens, and now most people are kind of doing the modern versus postmodern thing. And I want to say both of those are just wrong. And we need to have a biblical epistemology. Mm. I'm concerned about postmodernism. I'm concerned about modernism. And once, and so the Christians in the modernist time, this I was trying to get to, is that those are the fundamentalists. They're saying we are clinging to the fundamentals of the faith, which to them was virgin birth. To them was you need to be converted to be a child of God, which was the miracles really happened. So we're clinging to the fundamentals. And I hear that and go, amen. 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 If that's but the case, then let's make that's so be fundamentals. Like, so I like the conclusion. The question is, how'd you get there? Yeah, how'd you get there? And even nowadays, fundamentalism ends up being Christians who embrace modern epistemologies and do so over and against postmodern epistemologies. So this idea that we can chop the Bible up using the right method to get the right deal. Um, there's a, a theologian that I like who he describes it as the theological sausage maker where you just put the Bible in and turn the crank till you get what you want out the other side. And the the good part of that even though that's, is that you're still clinging to the confessions and the creeds, but the bad part of that is there's a method that's actually idolatrous. It's not the way that God designed it, 
and it actually elevates human reason and separates humanity from God and says that, like, yeah, my heart and soul, that's uh, for Jesus, but non-Christians and Christians have a, a, an overlap in their mind so that we can all equally know stuff. And so it's, uh, it minimizes the role of sin, and it minimizes the personal nature of what it means to be present with God. So I want to talk about now what I think is like, uh, and actually the biblical epistemology. Oh, and nice. Yeah, we get there eventually. Yeah. And I think the most helpful text for understanding this is Job 28. So this is mm. Job's the oldest book in the Bible. It was written before the Pentateuch. It is the uh, kind of the grounding of Jewish epistemology in particular. And so Job 28, 28, says, turning away from evil is knowledge. ESV says understanding. So to turn away from evil and to turn to God is knowledge. So there is a shorthand way of saying that is repentance is knowledge. Mm. Coming up under the Lordship of Christ is knowledge. That knowledge is fundamentally an instinct, not necessarily justified true belief. That the infant that clings to the bottle knows that life is in the bottle, that the dog who eats the food knows, that the person who plays piano knows. Like you can read 7,000 books on playing piano, but until you have hours and hours and hours at the keys, you do not know. So also, turning from evil is knowing God. It's not knowing about him. It's not being able to list off facts. It's about turning towards him. And so even that sense, John Frame, he defines biblical knowledge as covenant friendship with God. Hmm. So covenant, meaning connected, committed, proximity, that God initiates and we respond to. And friendship is intimate knowing, knowing and being known. Even in the garden, it says Adam knew Eve and she bore a son, that there's a personal, like, connected, present knowing that engages there. So this is a kind of knowing, a kind of epistemology that it's striking to me. Some of the differences I see just based on that history versus what you described is this biblical framework, it's relational versus just kind of, you know, being up in the clouds somewhere and it's moral. Yes. And that both of those things seem important. Yeah. The, the heart of the person who reads the scriptures matters in rightly understanding the scriptures. The presence of the Spirit giving the person a new heart, the purity of desire, the purity of mind, affects our capacity to even interpret God's Word. Uh, the Spirit personally illuminates to us the text that he wrote through the biblical authors personally. And so it is a very relational recognition. That's not just in how we interpret Scripture, but that's in even how we, we know him, that we have experience of him experience of what he's done. And even when you look at the book of Exodus, he's constantly working in history, and the refrain is, so that you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know, that he is personally revealing himself in history, in action, in the scriptures, in our experience of him. So that is can sound postmodern. Our experience of him is how we know him, how he actually is. That sounds like modern. And so there's our experience of him as he actually is. And so, uh, so it's not postmodern, it's not modern, but there's a duality there. And so John Frame actually uses this, what he calls triperspectivalism. There's a threefold lens through which we understand 
God and no God and no people. And so if you picture like a Venn diagram with three circles on it, they're all overlapping. This is like what good knowledge is like. And so the circle number one would be normative or law. It is reality as God has created it and revealed it. Just what's, what's true in God's world. Yeah. And so in one sense, modernism is just saying that's the only circle. Hmm. Then there's a second circle that is uh, existential. That is human subjects involved in God's world as persons interacting with God the person. So there is experience, there is perspective, and that is, it, that's the situational. So normative, God's law, God's word. Situational, me, in this context, in this world. And then existential is my internal process. So, so if situation would be like our Western Christian culture, I'm, I'm always experiencing God in this context. Existential is like my internal process. Hmm. And so that would sound very uh, um, postmodern, the existential piece. And so the, the situational sounds like justified true belief because you're measuring, evaluating empirically scientific method. The normative sounds like this rationalist, um, disconnected. The, situ- the existential sounds like this emotionalist or postmodern. But if you even think about it, the normative correlates bonds with the father who creates things as they are. The son is the example, the one who faithfully inhabited the situation, and the existential is the spirit, the one who works inside of us. And so even there's a Trinitarian vision mm. for how we know these things and the way that God interacts with us. And so um, it's not just how we know other things, but it's how we know the piano. But even if I was going to explain to you what Taylor is like, and I gave you a list your of... Your wife. Yeah, my wife, Taylor. Yeah. yeah. If I gave you a list of facts about her, you know, born 1990, five foot five, mother of one, you know, like the, you could read that list and really not know her any better. Mm-hmm. Just like, but if I know her in a way that you'll never know her and experiencing her in a room, what is she like when she had a good day? What's she like when she had a bad day? How does she react when a person around her does this? How does she react when this happens in the world? What happens when her son does that? How does she respond? Like, I'm constantly growing in knowledge of her, but it's actually an epistemology of love because my personal investment in her creates curiosity and actually makes me lean in and seek to know her more. And so the biblical, cent- <clears throat> the biblical centrality of love actually is what motivates learning. Hmm. And so this is true for scientists and doctors that when they love their work, they are personally invested and energized and engaging it. And this, obviously, myth of objectivity that we're always loving something all the time. And whether it's loving success to the detriment of our integrity or loving uh, God to the way that energizes us to explore his world, that this personally invested, connected, visceral. So ultimately, love ends up being about good instincts and knowledge ends up being about good instincts. This goes back to when I first started formally studying theology is I would hear people say stuff that I had a sense was theologically false, but I couldn't even articulate it. So I'd, I had no justified true belief, but I did have knowledge. Hmm. I knew that flying to the Vatican wasn't... Wasn't I, the answer. I knew that was thumbs down. Yeah. But I couldn't give you a justified true belief about it. But because I had sat under good preaching, because I had knowledge of the scriptures, I mean, that it was in me, even though it was, pr- it was pre-verbal. I wasn't even able to articulate it, but I had a sense... 
that's incongruent. That doesn't fit. Mm. Just like if you're playing sports, you know, majoring in doubles to left, is that you said? You know? <laughs> I was so, trying. I mean, yeah. sometimes I hit grounders to second base, and <laughs> yeah. that wasn't so good. But I mean, if you sat down and someone tried to explain, how did you know to swing at that pitch? And if you try to offer some type of rationalistic explanation for, sure, well, the look in the pitcher's eyes and <laughs> based on the count and you just sound totally dumb sure, or like totally arrogant. Right. You know, like, well, I knew that. But really, it's the accumulation of habits and practice and discipline over decades that gave you instincts to know when and how to swing at that pitch. And so you say, how do you know, you know, to avert your eyes when this happens? It ends up being that good knowledge is turning away from evil and ends up being good instincts. So this is why uh, our heart matters, our practices matter, our disciplines matter, our habits matter, because those form our instincts. And if we want to live in God's world well, we need to know him well, we need to know ourselves well, and we need to develop good instincts, not just good explanations, not just good justifications for what it means to know. So as I think about all this, I, I think of kind of an observation I want to run by you and then a, a question I want to ask. So the observation is, um, it seems like if God, if you think about that, that tri-perspectival thing you just mentioned, or even if you just kind of use modern, postmodernist categories, right? A, a modern thing would be if God had only revealed himself in a book or if he'd only revealed himself kind of in this telegram from heaven sort of a thing, um, this analogy breaks down a bit, um, but he didn't. He revealed himself as a person, as a as a Jewish man in a specific location at a specific time, um, in a very situated dynamic. Right? That's that's how Jesus is revealed. Postmodernism: God doesn't reveal himself in a Gnostic way, as if like, hey, he's just going to give you some sort of secret knowledge. Um, but he, again, reveals himself as a person. So it's just interesting that um, it feels like even knowing God, not just as a concept and not just even through his word, but the fact that God reveals himself in a person means inherently um, that knowledge is relational and that knowledge is moral and that knowledge is kind of all that instinctual stuff. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the important thing to highlight there is that event revelation of God personally working in history, both before Jesus and in Jesus, precedes word text revelation. Mm. That the text is the record of the event. And so it is God's actions personally that are then recorded, and he's personally invested in the recording of them. It's not to lower the view of Scripture at all. Sure. It's actually to hide the view of Scripture that Scripture is pointing to, reminding us of, divinely interpreted real events. Mm. And so it's kind of like we get the best of both because there are real events in history that we have divinely interpreted and our application and implications are given to us in the scriptures. Yeah. And so it's not, and what ends up happening is modernists tend to say this Bible is a huge pain. We should reorganize it into theological categories rather than recognizing that, like we're preaching through John right now, that John really reveals Jesus to us as Jesus revealed himself to us, which is through interactions, mm. through stories. Um, he's, he, he interacts with people a ton, a lot of conversations, more conversations than sermons. Right. 
and it's just a, a different way of understanding those things. But this this whole idea that love is at the center of knowledge mm-hmm. affects the way that when I say, do you know that person? Do you know God? Do you know him? That I really know him based on how much I love him. Herman Bovink, who I think is the best theologian um, who's dead. You named a dog after him. Yeah, I named my dog Herman after him. And my dog is not carrying the name well. <laughs> He's a disaster. I don't think that dog could be trained to do anything. <laughs> Very little knowledge on that dog. Nothing, yeah. <laughs> but Herman Bovink said that God is known to the extent that he is loved. Hmm. And so it's not God is known to the extent that you read systematic theology books. It's not God is known to the extent that I have Bible verses memorized. But if anything, God is known to the extent that he's loved. And this is true for people, that when we don't love them well, we tend to read them poorly. Yeah. We tend to know them poorly. But when we're like personally invested in what's going on. So when it comes to measuring maturity, measuring knowledge, love is at the center, that's affection for God. That when I really know, when if I'm growing in the knowledge of God, I'll grow in affection for him. Yeah. And this is the way that God created us. It's how we know people. It's how we know things. And even things like two plus two equals four, we had to learn through our senses from someone who wrote a book in a context where we have parents or teachers who love us. And so even what feel like abstract or formal pieces of knowledge uh, we learn those things in the context of embodied relational life. Yeah. So in a minute, I want to have you kind of boil it down and give us kind of like, so what? <laughs> like what difference? You've, you've hit on this, but I'd love to have you kind of, maybe that's where we'll end is like, so what difference does this make? Um, what, what should we take away from this kind of bottom line type thing? But before we get there, the, the question I had is, um, does this mean that non-Christians can't really know things? Because it sort of sounds like you need a revelation of God. You need to know God. You live in God's world. Um, And yet it feels to me like there's a lot of really smart non-Christians. There's a lot of people that don't follow Jesus and don't have the spirit of God who seem to like know a lot. I mean, is that an illusion? Do they not have real knowledge? Um, Right. If, If turning away from evil is knowledge, then and you're a sinner, but you're like brilliant. Are you, what do we, what do we think of that? So Romans one talks about how the indivisible attributes of God are made plain to all people. And so there's a sense in which scripture teaches that even non-Christians have some gut level, visceral knowledge of God that they suppress in unrighteousness. And so uh, that is what I think enables even, so the combination of that, so that would be the normative, that there's a degree in which even non-Christians can participate in the normative standard, which is God's laws that he's written into the universe, whether it's gravity or electromagnetism, whatever. So the God's written these laws in the universe. Non-Christians can engage in those things, that there's rationality, there is order, and that's because God made it that way, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, like in Hebrews 1. The second piece is the situational and the existential, and there is a sense in which God gives light to everyone. Uh, But there's another sense which talks about that if I really want to know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then I have to understand that in the context of God's world, which is that the reason logic and rationality is coherent is because God made it this way. Isn't that beautiful? 
And so these everything that God's created is designed to evoke worship and designed to evoke affection for him and for his world. And if we uh, don't get to that point where our knowledge is causing worship, we haven't yet fully known what is there to know. Mm. So it's kind of like you, Molly, your wife, you know her and you love her and you have a higher degree of knowledge of her than I will ever have. So it doesn't mean I don't have knowledge of her. So, so it just means not, you have a higher. De- it's more of a difference of degree than yeah. a difference of yes or no. Yeah, you're not saying that non Christians have false knowledge, whereas Christians have true knowledge. It's more like um, non Christians would have incomplete knowledge, and I mean everyone has incomplete knowledge, but but Christians have potentially a fuller opportunity for for knowledge. I, I guess one of the things that just concerns me is that I know some pretty, um, I know some pretty like not very thoughtful and not very educated, and not very well-read, and not very, you know, all those things, Christians, who really look down on educated, elite, uh, non-Christians. Um, and, I mean, maybe yeah, there's things to look down on, but maybe not everything should be looked down on. Yeah, you read in Proverbs, it says, the fool says in their heart, there's no God, and it's like, everybody's not a Christian is a fool, therefore, I'm not a fool, they're a fool, I'm wise, they're an idiot. And... That's yeah, so we, we want to go there. Yeah, that's misunderstanding what the prophets are doing, and I think it misunderstands the extent to which the eyes have been darkened regarding knowledge of creation. So I, I think that it's, it's more fair to say that if you think about like another man's wife, that there's a level of knowledge that's not possible unless it is your wife. Sure. Not just sexually, but I just mean even in terms of like emotional understanding, connection, yep. proximity, yep. the ability to anticipate reactions and mm-hmm. address them. Um, so there's just degrees of knowledge that are made possible by proximity and intimacy. Mm. And I think that I can't understand basics of science if I'm not proximate in yeah. a certain way yep. to God. Yep. All right, so let's bottom line it. And uh, if there was kind of like the main thing that you would hope someone would take away from this history, from this conversation, from this journey into epistemology, uh, what would it be? Knowing God is way more like playing piano than like doing calculus. Hmm. And by that, I mean, there's logic, there is order, there are rules, but it's time spent. It's personal investment. It's uh, experiential experience. It's, and so I just think that that's a way more compelling understanding that even just energizes time with God on a daily basis. And I think the other thing I would say is that you asked me to distill it, so I'm not doing that. No, that's all right. You can say two things. Yeah, the other, the other big deal is that we can have knowledge of something without being able to explain it very well. Hmm. And so I think a lot of Christians feel a great degree of shame because they read or hear preachers and they go, well, I can't do that, so I must not know. Whereas I do think that there's a sense in which an infant has a real knowledge that milk is life and it's way preverbal in that it's not our ability to articulate our faith, but it's the presence of our faith that is knowledge. And so I think if I consider like the infant who knows the milk is what I need, and the piano player who knows time on the piano. I think that's way more of a biblical view that gets to what it means to know God mm. um, by experience and by person. And I think there are some people who are gifted at 
with words expositing the faith, but I think that Christians who even maybe listen to this and think this is a lot, <laughs> uh, I don't think having good epistemology is a precondition for having knowledge of God. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I even as I think about the people in my life who I've just had a sense of like, man, she knows God or wow, that guy really knows God. Um, there's always some information that they've learned along the way. But what makes me say that is not how many degrees they have and how many books they've read. It's just this sense of like they've been with God. Yeah, it's rightly tuned affections yeah. based on healthy investment and habits that create good instincts that help people rank situations. Mm-hmm. So to some degree, if I said, hey, Luke, do you know your wife? How do you know you know your wife? It'd feel <laughs> absurd. It'd sure. be like, what's going on here? So to some degree, even asking like, what does it mean to know God? To someone who really knows God, it feels absurd. Yeah. It, it's, it's time spent. It's affection. It's proximity. It's loyalty. It's covenant friendship. Like the, the heaviest hitting alive theologian defines a knowledge of God as covenant friendship, mm-hmm. which I just think is beautiful and compelling. And so I do think that the goal of the Christian life is to know God, if that means to grow an intimate covenant friendship with him, not just to add facts to my catalog in my brain. Yeah, That's great, man. Well, that's a good place to start with this, just thinking about knowledge. Um, You kind of maybe want to dive into this more in the next episode? Yeah, I was thinking that next episode we would go to knowledge of God's world and knowledge of ourselves. Okay. And we'd extend this line of thinking to what does it mean to know stuff besides about God? Yeah. How do we evaluate what's true in the world? Yep. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, one of the things just as we close out here that I want to invite those of you listening to do is just to let us know what sort of questions you have, what sort of theological topics you uh, need help on. Is there any areas of uh, insight into culture or into theology? Um, feel free to email us at uh, Luke Simmons at redemptionaz.com or Seth Trout. That's with uh, two T's at the end. Seth Trout at redemptionaz.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to interact with you. And uh, I'm just excited for uh, what we're going to learn through this and how I think even already, uh, what I love about this is just the, uh, it's thoughtful, it's rich, um, but it's also maybe a little surprising probably for some folks. And I think that that'll be really sweet. So Uh, Seth, thanks. This has been fun. Thanks, Luke, for getting this project started. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, Share it with some friends, and have a great day.